for me, it's more about food culture. And I, I don't look at myself as a, as a chef chef. It's more about understanding cultures and writing stories about cultures. So that's where with our, our whole ethos, it's about understanding other people's cuisines and under, understanding other people's cultures and also the experience that you've had with them and trying to deliver that into you know, uh, a restaurant format. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Australia is a land with many histories, many cultural elements, and made up of a population from all over the globe. Our proximity, though, is on Asia's doorstep, and this is reflected in our food and our residents too. But many head north to Asia for a food career, and their influence is amazing. Will Merrick is the owner of the Sarong Group. Will, how are you going? Good. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, it's good to have you here. Uh, you've uh, you started your career uh, in Sydney at some amazing restaurants, but you've really made a name for yourself in Asia. What what led you to uh, move um, north to Asia? Well, um, if it's, it's for me, it's it's uh, always wanting to be able to cook with Asians, cook in Asia, um, to really get a, a good understanding. I found that, you know, when I was working in, in back sort of 20, 22 years ago, um, I think that, you know, uh, originally Australia was at the forefront of uh, doing Asian cuisine, especially when I was working in London at Harvey Nicks and, and a few other um, restaurants there, that, you know, that, that whole fusion Asian thing, Australia had it down pat and, uh I think you know in in the early sort of 2000s um it started to no one no one had really sort of gone over and and experienced asia and so everyone was slightly you know monotonous i would say the scene was um so hence why i wanted to you know pick up my bags and and uh and go traveling and and start to work in asia and so um you know thailand was where i wanted to be but um bali came came across my table and so we ended up deciding to move there well i love to explore what you've done in in bali but let's go all the way back to when you were young when did you when did you first get interested in food um i never was actually <laughs> it was never a passion at all um it, it it was out of necessity um basically so i i uh I'd never, I was never good at school, um, and I left school at 16, and um, didn't really do very much for 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 about a year. Um, my mum sent me to to sixth form college to try and finish um, my schooling, and that didn't work out so well. Um, and uh, so I had a run in with the law, so to speak, instead. So that was, uh, I suppose, my schooling. Um, and from there, basically, I needed to to you know. Get together so to speak and I needed to also prove to um, courts etc that I wasn't the irres irresponsible boy that I was and um, so I needed to, to choose some sort of a career path and so I was good at sports um, and good at uh, games etc but you know to do physical education you'd have to get up at six o'clock in the morning and start you know doing exercises in the cold in Scotland so I thought that wasn't a very good game to get into um, and so I ended up getting into cooking. Um, and then, you know, one thing led to another and I went down to London and got a great opportunity in London and then started working at the Avenue, uh, worked at the Laranger under Marcus Waring, worked at Babendum's, Harvey Nicks, 
the collection um, and sort of uh, doing um, stuff there in London. And so that's where it sort of led to and then decided to go to Australia afterwards. Well, let's look at London. What, what were the kitchens like then? Do you have any memories that you can share of, of the challenges of being a young chef in, in London at that time? Women were not women. <laughs> they were hardcore, tough, and um, and uh, they were they were um, it was it was a very male-dominated kitchen. Um, and I found that you know, being around that, it it really didn't give room um, for you know I suppose what you have nowadays, which is a very fair sort of system, and it was a very male-dominated kitchen. So, you know, the biggest thing that I struggled was when I came from London, where um, and started working in Sydney, where I walked into Neil's Perry Kitchen that was all full of women, um, and so that was a complete flip um, of. I suppose the cultures, and I think you know what was also interesting and the hard thing I think in London is that you know you 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 would look into the Good Food Guidebook, you would choose uh, what uh, places you want to work, then you went in, you got a job, and you started from the bottom, um, and you did the long hours and you did the time. Where now it's a completely different flip side of it, um, where really it's you know the the employee is at the um, is, is is in control and the employer is not, um, which is sort of very on topic for the for the current situation at the moment. What what led you to uh, come down to Australia? Um, well, it was when I was working at Harvey Nicks. The, you know, I think Australia had a huge um, uh, Asian fusion thing going forward, and so for me, it was very uh, interesting and important to to come over and try and experience uh, some of that sort of cuisine that Neil Perry was cooking. Um, you had uh, Peter Gordon cooking there as well uh, in London. And so this was, you know, the sort of whole new um, age of, of fusion coming into the Western world or into the Western kitchens. So I wanted to sort of be part of that. Tell us about those early years in Sydney and the kitchens you worked in. What, what was the real inspirations for you that sort of uh, led you on to the path that you're on? Um, I suppose, you know, I, I mean, I was very privileged to to be Martin Burt's first sort of sous chef um, and, uh, and and stepped into uh, Longgrain uh, when it first opened. I was the first employee uh, under Marty and under uh, Sam Christie. Mm. They gave me the opportunity, you know, I remember my first job was sanding floorboards before the kitchen even opened. Um and I was just a backpacker that uh, that arrived in uh, Sydney and and uh, fell upon some good luck. And I really think it's more about right time and right place. And I seem to have, have hit that um, definitely in Sydney. You know, Olympics were were about to kick off. Uh, Sydney was on a buzz, um, and I was very fortunate as well to you know have a have a relationship with someone that was a fashion designer as well um, in Sydney. So, you know, my first date was going down to the Royal Elastics parties in the Chinese gardens. Um, so I was very, very fortunate to, to I suppose, um, come in um, and be introduced to Sydney as a Sydney cider and not be introduced to it as a backpacker. Um, and I think that was one of the key successes that I, you know, uh, enjoyed. I mean, I went down to Melbourne first before I did Sydney for uh, about six months and worked at um, the Stoke House um, and the Albert Park. And um, 
didn't enjoy that. Um, Melbourne wasn't for me. Um, and I, you know, I, I love Sydney. Um, so coming from Scotland, going to Melbourne was a similar sort of climate um, in the winter, at least. Um, so therefore, you know, coming up to Sydney was 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 a, the reason why you come to Australia as a pom. Tell us about you know what it was like when you first got to Sydney and the the influence of Asian cuisine there. How different was it to what you'd experienced in London? Well, in London, it, it, it was more Japanese. I mean, this is going way back where Mag- where Wagamama's was was the newest thing on the block. Mm. Um, and, you know, Wagamama's came to Australia and fell miserably. So, I mean, it, it, it sort of shows that the level that where the UK was for Asian food, I think, you know, it's very different now. And I think, you know, London is actually where I get a lot of my inspirations for Asian food um, rather than Australia. Um and I think that, that, you know, London has flipped around completely. Um, and, you know, whether you go for great Indian or whether it's, 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 you know, even David Thompson did it in London as well. Um, and there's some also some, some, uh, I would say that it's more, you know, London is great for, uh, Sri Lankan. It's great for Indian cuisine. Um, and, uh, and also Middle Eastern cuisine. It's really, really good for as well. Um, I think, you know, Sydney still tops it on, on Thai food pretty much, um, or Australia does. Um, but I think, you know, for me, it's, it's, it was really important to try and get an understanding of, of what Asian fusion is. And I still think Australia does that the best. You mentioned that you had a real interest in Thailand, but an opportunity in Bali came across your desk. Tell, tell us about that opportunity and, and what, what that opportunity was at the beginning. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it, it uh, Bali for me it never really attracted me um, as an island. Um, it was, you know, too many tourists. I was, you know, up in northern Laos and we were in uh, northern Thailand back in the 80s. Uh, sorry, in the 90s, late 90s, I was traveling Cambodia when, you know, there was still curfews and the Pol Pot regime um, was still around. So, you know, Asia in, in that area and Vietnam was, was really interesting because it hadn't really opened. Um, and Bali was, was basically like Costa del Sol for me in, in the UK, um, where it was just very commercial and, and it was, uh, surfers and it didn't, it didn't attract me as much. But to be honest, looking at it back now, Bali is an amazing place to, I suppose, dip your foot into Asia because it's, it, it does have your Western comforts, so to speak, um, as well as it has an amazing culture. And I think, you know, it was, uh, I had my eyes set on somewhere like Thailand, but I think, you know, looking at it now, I'm very glad that I did Bali because, you know, my wife's Indonesian, my kids, my kids are half Indo and I've spent the last 20 years there. Um, and, you know, I think, what I realized, I suppose, a while back was, you know, you, you can fall in love with, with, with your Indonesian uh, wife. But I think when you start exploring Indonesia, you fall in love with her and, and, and everything even more so because it's just such an amazing country um, that you don't normally see that sitting in Bali. You just see what you see around the tourism. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's what I found, you know, uh, the big difference between Thailand. And also, I think, you know, Thailand is... What I realized, and I and I worked in Thailand as well um, for about a year and a half, um, and I realized that you know, for me personally, I don't know about other people, but for me, Indonesians, you can be Indonesian without 
being Indonesian, if that makes sense. Um, whereas I think in some parts of Asia that it is hard to be Thai if you're not Thai Thai. Um, and it's hard to integrate um, into the families, etc. But because of Indonesia with its Dutch um, colonialism and just the mannerism as well, that um, they're very warm and open people. And so it's been a, an absolute pleasure to explore that country and be part of it. Well, uh, the island of Bali is where you chose uh, to establish your eatery empire, Sarong Group. D- tell us a bit about it. Um, well, you know, uh, when I arrived in Bali, I took a job at the Sofitel and, uh, I, it was my first sort of hotel job. Um, and I remember the, the GI was coming out of Jimmy Licks and, uh, the, the GM had, uh, flown me up there and there I was with eyebrow rings, ripped jeans and a, and a bond singlet. Okay. Good day, mate. <laughs> and, um, I'm your head chef. Uh, I think the, the, the Swedish GM mouse dropped and couldn't believe what he just, um, sort of, uh, set up. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, I suppose what, what the Sofitel was looking for at that time was, was not looking for that corporate chef, was looking at that chef that, that, you know, was really into the food and really into the products, um, and not into, you know, uh, the corporate side of things. And that's, I suppose, has been with me, um, even up till now. Um, you know, I don't, I don't run in a corporate way. Um, I'm always on the pans. I'm always, you know, I would rather cook than run the pass. Um, just because that's where, that's where I think the most important part of, of running a kitchen and educating people is, is not at the front, but is at the back. Um, so, you know, we, we did the Sofitel for two years and then we had the second bomb, um, which I was there for. And so Bali, of course, dropped off. Um, so we decided to go to Hong Kong. So I took an opportunity in Hong Kong and in Thailand at the same time, uh, doing two different, uh, jobs. Uh, one in, one in, uh, Hong Kong was, um, for a, a big, uh, Hong Kong, uh, restaurant uh chain profile they had like you know six or seven different restaurants at the time and then i worked for karma which was another hotel in kosamui wow um so that was all at what the ripe age of 27 or something 28 what led you back to bali and i, I think it was it was you know kosamui was fun but you know my my wife and I got a bit tired of sitting with Manchester, so like sitting with Bob for Manchester and two hookers on a Friday night. <laughs> and that sort of, you know, chawang on a Friday night. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we found that the social life was not what it was in, in Bali. We were probably, um, too early for Phuket. I'm sorry, for Samui. I think Samui is very different now, but back in the day, um, this was, I don't know, 2006, 2007, I think. Um, you know, Samui was, was where basically a lot of people, um, were the best jobs were all in, uh, Chiang Mai and Bangkok and Phuket. And, you know, the scene, you didn't have the four seasons. You didn't have any major big hotels in Samui. Um, but you know, now it's completely different. And I think, you know, after two years of being there, you know, they were starting to build all the bigger chains. So for me, it was still very much a, a slightly backpackers sort of island. Um, and so that's where, 
my wife and I said, thank you, great experience, but um, not something that we want to be there permanently. And so we came back to Bali because that's, to be honest, the best place that we've ever worked um, from a holistic point of view, from you know a social life, from a work point of view, from a professional point of view, um, and also you know from a cultural point of view as well. How did the uh, decision come along to create your own group? Um, got tired of working as middle management. The owners, you know, uh, you're the first to be replaced and the staff hate you. <laughs> Who wants to be middle management? <laughs> it's an absolute shit job. <laughs> well, tell us a bit about the Sarong Group. What, what is it that you, you do and um, take us on a dive into the food that you're cooking? Um, so, you know, we... We started Sarong, um, and again, you know, like I said, everything is is on a is on a wing and a prayer. You know, I I got uh, fired from a job uh, in in Bali um, from a hotel group called Sentosa, um, and they, you know, were going through you know management shifts and changes, and of course, you know. You, the, the top level always gets 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 removed um, as new management are coming in. Um, so you know, I was again out of my ear. Um, we had lost our our house because of it because we just you know um, built it and so had repayments and all the rest. Um, so I was marched out with sixteen security and then put out in in uh, sent on a one way ticket to KL um, and came back as a tourist again. So from that point, I you know, vowed to myself that I would never put myself in that sort of situation and be vulnerable. Um, so hence why we started to, I spent, you know, six months trying to find the right location. Um, I had to borrow money from, uh, my brother, um, to tide us over my wife and I, we, you know, we laugh at it, but this is actually the, the last conversation I had with my staff um, before COVID, um, but it's a reality of, of what happened to us back then, which is, you know, we would get on our motorbike and we would only have a certain amount of petrol for the week. So we would calculate our shopping and we would get on the motorbike and go down to the supermarket and we'll buy a chicken and make sure we have the, the legs on Monday night, the breast on Tuesday and, you know, the carcass on Wednesday for soup. Um, and that was how we had to sort of uh, live for sort of nine months. Um, and that was the same conversation as we shut down all the restaurants before COVID, as I said to the staff, is that, guys, you need to get rid of your mobile phones, you need to get rid of your all your expenses, et cetera, and start living lean now because it's going to be a long haul for this to come back again. So, you know, even true to that day back then, we had that sort of ethos of really working with the staff working on the line with the team and running the business um, from that side of it. Uh, so we opened up Sarong. We hadn't done Indian before, and I didn't want to. I'd already done two restaurants in Bali that were, you know, more Southeast Asian Thai. Um, so we wanted to put something different in. Um, so we hired a chef from India. Um, and the only reason why he got his job is because he's the only one that put a CV and a menu together, which I think he ripped off from the local takeaway place up, up the road that he worked at. Um, so I said, great, you've got the job. Fantastic. Um, so I flew him all the way to Indonesia and, uh, thank God he worked out very well and still works with us to this day. Um, so we were very lucky 15 years on. Um, and so I think, you know, he's, uh, so we added that Indian element into it. And I think, you know, Sarong has morphed from being, 
Southeast Asian to being more Indonesian to being more Indian. And basically, for me, when we just had Sarong, we would sort of diversify. But as we started to get bigger and we opened up uh, Mamasan and then we opened up uh, Hujan and we opened up Eno uh, in Jakarta and then we opened up uh, KL Mamasan and we opened up in Hong Kong Mamasan. Then we had Billy Ho and we've also got uh, Tiger Palm. We also had Somchai as well. We needed to start to diversify what the, what the menus were and so started to separate them into regions. Um, so, you know, we, Sarong became a little bit more Indian, Indonesian. Uh, Mama San was more of your Southeast Asia flavors. Somchai was Thai. Tiger Palm was Malay. Uh, Billy Ho was Japanese. And then we had Hujan, which was completely Indonesian. Um, so we started sort of diversify from that. Um, and it was great because, you know, we spent most part of my ethos was, and the only way to stay ahead of the game um, from my side was to was to travel so you know i remember there's a, a well-known uh chef and writer um called uh bondan um and also william wongso and uh william wongso came to mama san restaurant and we had just done our first book and i was very proud saying look look how wonderful our book is and you know we've been commissioned to do another indonesian cookbook and you know he's quite a good friend and he turned around and said well what right do you have to write an Indonesian cookbook just because you're married to an Indonesian. So I sort of took the sail out of my, took the wind out of my sail slightly, um, instead of eating humble pie. Um, so I turned around and said, well, listen, it's not what I'm going to, it's not what I'm doing now, but it's what I will be doing. And you're going to be help me to get there as well. Um, so he very kindly gave me all the contacts to all these old ladies throughout Indonesia and I, you know, got on uh, uh, with it and started traveling and started to um, ex- go off to India. We went to all over Indonesia. We've been in earthquakes. We've been in tsunamis. We've got these, you know, amazing stories. And for me, when I build a restaurant, it's no longer about the ingredient or, or you know, as I call it, food porn or Instagrammable or anything like that. For me, it's about food culture. And it's understanding how food has migrated from one place to another and how it's been integrated by that culture. So I find, you know, what's interesting for me is not so much about the spice trade, but it's actually the tribes along that trail that have actually absorbed those ingredients that traveled and have made them their own. And whether that's through religion, whether that's through history, whether that's through migration, that to me is the stories of restaurants. So now I don't really call, call ourselves, uh, uh, um, for me, it's more about food culture. And I, I don't look at myself as a, as a chef chef. It's more about understanding cultures and writing stories about cultures. So that's where with our, our whole ethos, it's about understanding other people's cuisines and under, understanding other people's cultures and also the experience that you've had with them and trying to deliver that into, you know, uh, a restaurant format, whether that's Thai, whether that's Malay. And, you know, when I did the Tiger Palm and Malay restaurants, I spent, you know, six months working with non chefs and sitting with them and understanding their culture. And, you know, one thing I couldn't understand about the non chefs were they're all in their 60s 
And, you know, there are staunch um, bloodline that don't believe that they can pass it on because, you know, the bloodline has been watered down and they're not nonya nonya. Um, and so, you know, I said, well, you know, can't you, can't you just break that rule and, and pass it on slightly? Mm-hmm. And, and they were very staunch about it. So, you know, it's really interesting sort of understanding these uh, subcultures within like another culture, um, you know, and, you know, with those non-years, actually, you know, everyone thinks it's Singapore and Malaysia, it's where it's all at, but actually there's more non-years in Indonesia than there is anywhere else, but it's just been watered down in Indonesia and they haven't been so staunch on, on their, uh, cultural beliefs. Um, so there's a lot of stories like this that we go into and, and I find that, you know, we're before COVID, we're all the way up in, uh, Assam and in the Nagalands in northern India um, and understanding their cultures and sitting with the tribes there. Um, we're all the way up in Zuru Valley um, with the Apatani tribes. Um, so for me, that's that's what I understand about food and that's my belief in food. Um, and it's gone from being commercial restaurants all the way up to being slightly uh, offbeat and off-center and, and writing stories about them. The last year and a half has been challenging for everyone on the planet and the food industry has been uh, impacted quite heavily with multiple venues uh, in different countries. What what sort of impact has it had on you? Um, Humbling. I I was sitting on a rock for nine months, i.e. Rock Ness, which was very humbling. Um, I, we, we, we came back basically, we're in Kathmandu um, traveling. We came back uh, to Bali. We shut the restaurants within all uh, five restaurants within three days. And I turned around to my wife and I said, listen, I don't think that we can ever, not ever, but I think we can work in Bali for the next year and a half. Um, we, need to, we need to make a move. Um, so, you know, two days later, we packed our bags and um, entered into Australia. Um, luckily, luckily, my daughter um, was at school here and, we had the foresight of buying a house here a year ago or a year before COVID. Um, so we just picked up our bags and, you know, I hadn't been in, in Australia for 20 years um, and have to restart everything all over again. I remember we arrived at the airport in Perth and, you know, we didn't have any money on us or, you know, Australian dollars, et cetera. And um, we arrived back home and, um, you know, three days later, slotted the kids into uh, – into Palmyra Elementary, um, and uh, my wife didn't have a visa, so you know she came on a spouse visa, and uh, we've had to do it all from scratch. I brought my mountain bike with me, and because we didn't have a car here, and basically it was like going back to the age of 19, and I would go shopping with my saddlebags on my mountain bike and start all over again. Wow. So it's been a, a very humbling sort of experience, and then working for going back to being middle management, and working for other people, which, you know, didn't last very long. <laughs> um, so we, 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 we worked for a large uh, group here, which is great. And, you know, I think for me, the biggest learning curve, and I think I've always said that to people that have come to, to Bali and I want to do businesses here, the first thing you have to do is go and work for a big company and sit and watch and and just you know, do see, see what, uh, everybody else is doing and, and understand the economics of, uh, country 
before you go out on your own because you'll make a lot less mistakes. Mm. And so that's what we did. Well, at the moment, you're settling a new venture in Leaderville in Perth. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about it? Yep. So again, you know, we've, we've, because you can't travel um, and because I love culture so much that I've ended up, um, you know, spending a lot of time understanding Australian ingredients that are here. And I think that's sort of what the fad is at the moment. But for me, it's, it's not so much about joining the fad. It's there's certain things that you can't get here that, that are from Asia, leaves and, and that kind of thing that have, you know, um, sour flavors and different profiles. So it's really trying to absorb some of those native ingredients into the Asian cuisine that I would have normally done if I was up in the hill tribes. Um, so examples of um, you're using um, instead of using cassia leaf, um, we're using salt bush uh, into the curries and chopping that up and mincing it through. Um, using wadogo greens instead of spinach into um, you know spinach curries, salak paneers, um, so palak paneers. Um, also, you know using. Um, a lot of things like desert limes um, into ingredients instead of green mangoes and uh, to, to create sour uh, profiles in there. So it's really understanding, again, what is what is around you. And what I realized that coming back to Australia when I first arrived as a backpacker, I'm now coming back as an immigrant with you know, a, a different uh, mindset because I've come back with an Indonesian mindset with an Indonesian family. So... With that, the good thing is, is that I've managed to connect into, you know, uh, Asia Town. Um, so we, we see, we see a very different things rather than going to the western suburbs of Perth. We're now, you know, hanging out in more of the back areas of Perth, um, where you've got a lot of great backyard growers. You've got a lot of great backyard restaurants where they're doing bakso soup at the back of someone's house selling it. Um, and they're doing, you know, different sort of satays and they're doing, you know, uh, Indonesian warungs at the back of their house. Um, and you can only get into that by being part of that Asian community. I know you have the the new venture, um, which will open in the not too distant future, but do you have plans to go back to Indonesia? What's, what's the feeling at the moment? Um, the feeling for me is, is the kids are all at school here. So Australia is, is definitely um, going to have to be home for the next, you know, three or four years. Um, Bali will come back. And when it does come back, it will come back hard. But I, you know, I, I say this often, but the flights to Europe now are the same as what they were in the 70s. Um, flights to Indonesia are, you know, $2,000 now. Um, that middle market for the next two or three years is not going to travel. You'll have your top end and you'll have your bottom end. Bottom end being you'll have people that go, you know, I don't want to spend two, three thousand dollars on rent every month. I'll buy a two thousand dollar ticket and live for nothing in Bali and be a nomad on their laptops. And so you've got a lot of that market down there. And so that's where Changu, et cetera, now are still quite busy. Um, but your middle market, which is, you know, sort of your 40 plus with three kids in tow, are not going to be traveling as frequently as what they used to. Um, and I think that's going to slow down dramatically until everyone's been vaccinated. You've had a huge upheaval for you and your family uh, during this time. What, what's some of the positives that you've taken out of it? Um, I think, you know, the, the, I suppose the positives is 
Um, we we're already thinking of coming back to Australia and starting to, you know, put some roots down here. I mean, one thing that I've realized as a, as a having an Asian family is, uh, and also as an employer in Asia, um, whether it's right or wrong, you know, you if you have someone with an Indonesian passport, you can always pay them less than what you do with an expat coming in. And I could see that with my children finishing school there. I couldn't see them being able to have a career in anything because it'll always be paid an Indonesian salary. Um, so that's why it was really important for me to come back and say to the kids, okay, listen, work in Australia until your mid twenties, and then you can go back to Indonesia as a mid-level career. Um, so this was always something that was in the plan, um, from a while and it just fast tracked it a couple of years, which has been a good thing for the kids because my eldest is now 19 and I put her here two years ago and I should have put her in two years beforehand. Um, but for my youngest and middle who is, you know, 11 and 13, it's the perfect time. You know, I've got my little Indonesian son that, um, all of a sudden is now in AFL, um, and couldn't understand why the pitch was round. Um, to, to, to now absolutely loving it and getting in there. And, and same thing with my daughter as well, playing hockey and all that kind of stuff where all the other kids in Bali are, are haven't gone to school yet. Um, so, you know, there's things like that, that are huge benefits uh, to it. Um, and also I think, you know, um, living in Asia, um, you, you've only got the money that you have in your hand. You don't have uh, savings. Well, when I say savings, you don't have um, superannuation funds. You don't have, you know, I've got friends that have been in Asia for, you know, 30, 40 years. I've come back and they're in their 60s. They can't get loans. They can't get mortgages. They can't get anything. So I'm really lucky that I've managed to do that at 45 and still be able to set up a life here for the future. Um, that if I came back in another 10 or 15 years, I probably wouldn't have been able to do that. I wouldn't have got the loans. I wouldn't have got the mortgages, et cetera. Well, I think uh, a lot of people over in Perth are very pleased to have you in town and very much looking forward to seeing um, what will um, be your offering there when you open the restaurant. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll touch base soon. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.